Welcome to the Bikepack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring, get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, and learn the pros and cons of certain gear, bikes, and bike setups. I hope you enjoy this podcast and that my guest stories fill your journeys with hours of listening. If you're new to the bike touring scene and considering going on a tour, I hope this podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. In the meantime, enjoy the show. In this episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I catch up with Leighton Ketty while he's in Australia. In 2019, Leighton decided to leave Saskatchewan, Canada and go explore the world by moving to Australia so as to be able to travel and work. With bike in hand, he would use his holidays and breaks to explore the vastness of Australia and Tasmania and distances beyond. Leighton, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it, man. Oh, I'm glad to have you on. It's uh, Yeah, we've been chatting for a little while since uh, going back some time. And uh, I do understand you're on the side of the road. So for listeners out there, if you hear noises on his end and stuff, you know, that's just a touring man uh, lifestyle. So, yeah. Everybody knows it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So tell me, tell us about yourself, Leighton. I mean, um, where are you from? I know, I think it's Saskatchewan, right? Yeah, so I'm originally from northern Saskatchewan, Canada, Prince Albert. Uh, Everybody from Saskatchewan will know there, PA. And so I grew up as a diesel mechanic. A uh, family full of logging and uh, truck driving, and I didn't ride a bicycle at all until my mid-20s, and what happened for me was I did the whole blue-collar lifestyle, became really good at being a diesel mechanic, had a house and everything, and was unsatisfied with my life and decided I would sell everything and, and uh, go traveling to Indonesia. Once I got there, I thought it'd be interesting to ride a bicycle to go through the villages and... I had no idea about bike touring or bike packing, anything like that. I honestly thought I invented it. And <laughs> ever since then, I was totally addicted. And people started telling me while I was bike touring, hey, uh, where have you bike toured? And we did this and that. And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, I, I had no idea. So it came to me really naturally. And now I'm just obsessed and I live my life around it. Nice. And what year was that you toured in uh, Indonesia? I started in 2013. Oh, nice. Okay. I did a big tour there at Christmas time, 2012. Oh God, that's cool. We were just a year off each other. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, yeah, I was, um, teaching in Malaysia and I thought, you know what? I'm, 
I don't want to do another one of these seven weeks of holidays, uh, Christmas break of drinking and partying all the time. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to fly to Indonesia, take my bike and uh, figure this thing out. Yeah, and it's such a good place to do. Where'd good you go? people, a good area. Where did I go, sorry? Yeah. I was in, so I'd started in Bali until I could learn to speak uh, Bahasa Indonesia. Nice. And then I went east, uh, Lombok and another island. I can't even remember the names. Flores. It's been so long. Florence, there you go. Flores. Flores uh, is after Flores, Lombok. Flores, Flores, yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. Okay, so I started in Java and I made it as far as Lombok and that was it. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, good places. To me, it was... I mean, everything was so new to me then that I had never even thought about traveling. I didn't even know where Indonesia was before I flew. So it's sort of, if I was to go back and do it, I would do it differently, of course. But uh, that's part of the learning, right? Yeah. So what did uh, people in Prince Albert, I mean, this pretty uh, pretty far north Canada, um, and like you said, very blue collar. What did they think when you're like, I'm going to Indonesia, bike touring, and or I'm going to create this, develop a new thing called bike touring? <laughs> like. No, no lie. I am not joking. My friends and family more or less had like this intervention with me and my, my parents, especially like my mom, they, they were like, son, like you're, you have a mental illness. Like we need to, you have something, we need to take you to a psychiatrist. Like you're not right in the head. Like they actually thought I was crazy for wanting to see the world. Like literally. I I find that's a, it's such a Canadian thing too, because you know, we're a huge country and we got so many people that are, you know, like you said, blue collar, small town. Uh, my dad was military and my mom as well. So, you know, when they said your mom wears combat boots, I was like, yep. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's just Canadians. We're in our own little bubble. And not, not that that's a terrible thing because we've got a fantastic country, but we really are in this little zone where we don't travel that much and, for the vast majority. And uh, people just wouldn't understand why you would want to travel and not work, make money, get a retirement savings. And that's that, you know? Yeah, they just don't get it. I mean, unless you grow up in like Fernie, BC or something where everyone's on this sort of traveling hub circuit. Toronto, maybe. Yeah, Toronto, maybe. I mean, my family, yeah, like they had, they've never left the country. I mean, since that travel they have. uh, But yeah, you just don't, like nobody ever talks about it. It's not a thing. It is put your head down and you go to work. And if you want to do any traveling, you do it at 65 when you've retired and saved up whatever, $2 million or something. Ah, uh, sounds just like my dad. Growing up, were you quite adventurous then? Or I think I always had this thing when I was growing up where I wanted to do sort of these crazy challenges and I didn't mind being on myself. So I, uh, by myself, sorry. So it wasn't that I wandered off into the woods, but I would always want to like bike somewhere far like as a kid on a little bicycle, you know, mm-hmm. or to go walk through the woods. And my dad was a lumberjack, literally ran a chainsaw for a living. So I didn't mind going in the bush, being alone. Uh, hunting was always fun, being alone and just these crazy challenges. Like I would, he always had machines and my grandpa mm-hmm. had these big machines. I would always like to strip engines apart. And I just didn't mind taking on these huge projects as like a very young kid. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think my adventure was internal in the sense where I just like developing skills like rebuilding engines, but also external where I would be totally comfortable walking off into the forest knowing that there was bear, moose, wolves, whatever. Okay. And um, you said you did your first tour there, that one in Indonesia was 2013. It was quite a few years before you actually left Canada for Australia, right? Yeah. So Australia is only a year and a half 
now between there the what happened actually was from Indonesia I had to fly to Mexico for my cousin's wedding so I was the best man at his wedding and I met my family there and that was the first time any of them had left the country so we go to Mexico oh, wow, okay. for this wedding and my flight was booked to go back to Canada we stayed at an all-inclusive resort which any bike tour out there you guys know that's not your style wasn't my style either and when we were leaving going to get on the shuttle to get back to our plane I was like nah uh, this isn't for me and I had picked up a cheap bicycle and I pulled it out into the lobby and started putting it together in like while we're waiting for the shuttle my family's like what are you doing you know what's this bicycle <laughs> all about and I was like I've heard about this country called Costa Rica and they're supposed to have some of the happiest people in the world I'm gonna bike to Costa Rica and I literally had no idea which countries were in between how long it would take I didn't know what language they spoke I knew nothing and and my family again they hugged me and I remember they they broke down crying. Your mom's crying. Your dad's like, trying wow. to rip her claws out of your arms. <laughs> yeah, they, they were like, "You're literally about to die." Like we're saying goodbye to our, you know, our cousin, our friend, our son, brother, everybody. You're about to die, and I just went for it. Nice. And how long did it take you to make it? You know, uh, the, to Costa Rica. I think it ended up taking me just over three months. But then I spent another thirteen months because I was sixteen months total in Central America. So I spent close to a year in Costa Rica alone and then I did 60 days in Panama, the longest my visa would let me. Uh, I just, I biked to her there. And this is before I even had done anything outdoors. I'd never hiked or camped. So I, I did most of it without a tent, sleeping on the ground on a tarp. Didn't know anything about mapping or GPS. I was like a non-technological kind of okay. youngin, you know? So I was just meandering through village to village trying to pick up Spanish and explore. Nice. And what were some of the experiences you had there? What, uh, like some of the, some of the great things, some of the great things, I guess the greatest thing was gaining the confidence to be able to be by yourself for so long, be by myself for so long. Mm -hmm. And so that confidence was a big thing. And of course you gain that confidence through negative things like being robbed, Mm -hmm. And through positive things, like just finding really great local people who take you into their home and want to show you their lifestyle. So for me, the reward, uh, yeah, just came through building all the confidence. So you mentioned you got robbed. What country was that in? Costa Rica. I got robbed several times. Oh, yeah. And um, did they always kind of take everything or they just took a few things and leave kind of thing? They, so one time at gunpoint was in the city so I had met some people who wanted to take me one of these uh, Costa Rican friends was an actor so she wanted to take me to watch one of her plays so I had went and when we were done we were walking back to her car we got robbed at gunpoint there so I wasn't on tour at that time but another time I was bike touring and like anybody else out there we all know that setting up the tent is a drag and if you get a if you become really confident with bike touring you don't have to set the tent up if you don't mind so I would a lot of times just sleep on the ground beside my bicycle and I was doing that and I woke up in the middle of the night and this guy was reaching over top of me to go through my things. So I didn't realize that he had already been there that night robbing me while I was sleeping. So I just jump up and I jumped up and started chasing this guy and I chased him around a corner or through a bush or something and 
And then two other guys ran at me and then he turned around and so I had three guys running at me when I realized that these guys were running at me and they had knives in their hand. I was looking at the knives and they were my knives. So then it all came to me that they had already robbed me previous in the oh, night. This shit. wasn't their first time. And that was a that was a pretty hectic situation. Huge learning curve on that one, I guess. Huge learning curve. All right. And um are you are you still in touch with any of the people you met in Costa Rica? Like uh, actually they contact me all the time, oh, especially cool. from Panama. I had stayed with a family there and, uh, yeah, Rijo Alberto. So he won't be listening cause he's, he's actually teaching school at the, what do they call that gap between the Dari- Colombia and Panama? Darien gap. Yeah. He teaches at the Darien gap. No so shit. I'm, I'm, I have a contact to get into the Darien gap. I'm thinking like, man, I'm going to be like the first guy on bike to actually cross the landmass into Columbia. I think somebody might have done it already, but yeah, it was like just, just raw suicidal and, you know, carrying, I don't know, somehow paying some bribes as they went or something. But yeah, most people do it with a pack raft, I think. Ah, uh, pack raft, I could see. Yeah, you'd, you'd want to have some money hidden in different places and you'd want to have some really good Spanish and you'd want to have a really good contact because that gets... Panama's not rough. Panama's scary. It's not rough. But that part of Colombia, 100%, yeah. that'd be rough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. Let me know if you ever do it. We'll have a talk about it. Yeah, that, that's a good call. So what made you decide to go to India, uh, to, sorry, Australia. And I think I saw that you stopped in India. Was that on the way to Australia? Yeah. So I went to India first because I had always had this dream of becoming a bike touring, uh, sort of yogi. What I, what I initially wanted to do was build a, a Facebook and YouTube and Instagram page on play, cool places to bike tour and then, then a yoga session to follow. So I had went to study yoga in India to make those videos happen. And then I realized that my passion was far more towards bike touring than it was instructing yoga. So I got a yoga teacher training certificate out of it. Okay. But then, but then decided not to pursue that passion and just went into filmmaking the bike touring adventures. So I went to Australia right after because the plan was there's a lot of work in Australia. I was going to work here, save up money and have enough money to bike around the world and do what I had planned for was five years uh, without having to work so I could just dive into the bike tour and go. Nice. And um, I guess like when leaving Canada to bike tour and stuff, I, you probably were making pretty good money, I guess, and had some savings from working in heavy machinery, I'm, I'm assuming. Oh, I'm the worst for saving <laughs> money because I, I had built my own house when I was in my early 20s. And it cost me a pile of money and it was a beautiful home. But since it was in the secluded lake, it was really difficult to sell. So I ended up taking a hit on it when I sold it. And I started a business while in Costa Rica doing bike touring, which pretty much depleted me all all my savings. So when I moved to Australia, I was something like fifty-four or $45,000 in debt. So I came to Australia owing money. Yeah, so I've had to pay all that off and then restart saving up money. (laughs) <laughs> nice. Well, I'm glad yeah. you, you you paid it off though now. So now you're doing all right. Yeah, I was a free man. I think three and a half months ago. That was the first time I wasn't in debt since I was 14 years old. Yeah, that happened to me while living in Malaysia a couple of years back. I was officially no school debts, no anything, no credit cards. And I was like, whoa, what can I go buy? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a pretty pure sense of freedom when you when you don't have that 
anchor of that financial anchor just dragging behind you. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So let's talk about your bike. Um, I'm guessing beyond the Mexico bike. Uh, what kind of bike are you predominantly using for your touring adventures? So this one, I, I call her Callejera, which in Spanish means street girl. Nice. And it's a surly long haul trucker. And this is back when you could get on that frame size. I'm really tall, so it's the largest frame size they offer. You could get it with 26s and with rim brakes. So okay. when I built her, I wanted to make sure that if I broke down in Costa Rica or if I broke down in Africa or Australia, I'd be able to find the parts to replace it. So I built a super simple bike for bike touring. Nice. And I think I saw you have like an insane amount of water bottles that you can carry on that thing. Yeah, I've got oof, my water storage is crazy. If I run my front water rack, I can do like up to 16 liters. Nice. And have you needed that? Like, have there been parts of Australia have gone where you're like that having all that water has been key? Oh, 100%. There was times where, I mean, when you're 200 pounds, 80 kilos, you can drink 12 liters of water in a day when you're bike touring in Queensland, especially if you're having a 12 or 14 hour day, like sunlight day. Right. So people, people always sort of bug me for the water storage. And it's like, well, if you were to go hardcore and go for one month, two months at a time, I can guarantee you, you would be stopped by water in Australia. And even recently, so I took my front rack off and just traveled with all the bottles. And you see how many I have. It's got one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, six liters plus a seventh liter. So I was traveling with seven liters and I could drink all of that in a day. And I just got up from the bottom of Australia where, and I did a really hardcore trek through what they call the bicentennial. And there was a day where I yeah, ran I out of, of water. So the bicentennial is crazy. And if you're on mountain peak to mountain peak, you don't get into a valley to get water. So yeah, I, I ran out of water with that water set up when I, when I really get off track and get out of the towns and get into the mountains. Wow, so you almost like needed that additional bottle you took off of the front rack, right? Yeah, and the only reason I didn't bring it is because, I don't know, to me it was just so heavy that I thought uh, I wanted to try and lighten the bike up because also when you travel really heavy, you drink more water because you're working harder. Right. So what I've been progressively working towards is lightening up my load so I don't drink as much water, eat as much food, and I can still cover the same, if not more, ground. Yeah, I hear you there. I've recently, well, last year, well, you would have followed some of those adventures, got a gravel bike, uh, or actually they, they, they marketed it as an endurance bike, which is more or less what I do. And I think my total weight was 28 pounds, you know? <laughs> wow, is that like uh, Something like that. Oh, no, maybe it was 28 kilos. But anyways, yeah. Maybe 28 kilos. Yeah, the bike is probably, 28. I think the bike is 20 pounds and then you get, you know, bags and stuff. Yeah, 28 kilos. So what is so that? That's it's like 50, it's like 60 pounds total. And that was five, that was including a week's wa uh, food, not water. Yeah. I two, think you did pretty good. Three bottles. Packing. Three bottles of water. So two liters, two and a bit. Two and a bit. So tell me, um, what's your bike setup like? Um, you run traditionally four panniers, I guess. So I run four panniers uh, that I built myself. So I had the Oort libs. I wasn't happy with them. So I took the skins off and got new skins made from a vinyl shop in Australia. So they're a ripstop nylon, like PVC, super crazy heavy duty. And they, they're they so waterproof that if I'm going to cross a river now, I just sort of put air in them, like puff them up, mm -hmm. roll them up tight, and I can float my bicycle across the river while walking beside it. Oh, so, that's wild. Yeah, and I built uh, I built my front 
uh, panniers to be the same size as my rears. So if I wanted to interchange them, I could. And that way you, you just, you have the same geometry in all of them. I found okay. it was a good balance for me. Oh, that's, that's how I run it yeah. with surly racks. Yeah, I saw that. I was going to ask you, it was one of my questions was about these panniers. And I think you, in your Instagram thing, you talked about how you, um, cause you work in heavy machinery and you would see these guys using these bags made of this heavy duty rubberized vinyl. And you said, and you say everybody with them. So you went and said, I'm going to get bags made by these people or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So when I came to Australia, the whole, the way they work and the way the diesel mechanics here is totally different. Every, every tool has a different name, the way they contract employees, it's all different. So what you commonly do in Australia is you have a bag full of tools and then they send you out to a machine and you, and you get a job and you have your bag of tools and these bags, some of these guys were saying, they had 20, 30 years with them. And I mean, you abuse the heck out of them every day. Yeah. And so I had to buy a tool bag for myself. And when I ran the tool bag, I started feeling the material and I knew my ort libs were about to fail. And I just thought, well, I'm going to go see this company. And of course they had no dramas whatsoever making me a set. And it was, I would say it's the best thing I've ever done for my bike because they're just so dependable and so heavy duty. And it really wasn't that much of a weight increase. You yeah. Know? And you just took the skin, you took the frame of the Ortley bag type thing and like the, the mounting hardware and used that or you found new stuff? Yeah. So all I did was cut the corners off that uh, on the Ortlibs so that I could have a more rounded surface in the bottom. And then I used the, yeah, the same mounting hardware and the adjusting hardware from the Ortlibs because cool. that's a pretty bulletproof setup. And then just, yeah, the new rubber all the way around. Awesome. What are you? Uh, what are some of the things you carry in your bags that you you can't live without? Without like maybe top three things you love that you carry. Obviously, water. <laughs> yeah, water's crazy. What are the top three things that I love? Uh, number one, if I can find it, almond butter. I'm. A, I, I honestly, I eat so much. I eat like five times more than a regular person. Like, let alone on a bike tour. So I'm. That was like, that's my favorite go-to thing when I have that. Coconut milk powder. Of course, I'm thinking oh, about food. Yeah. <laughs> Coconut milk powder to me is, uh, I. if you watch some of my videos that I'm going to put on YouTube, I even talk about how I will not bike tour without it. It's a necessity for me. And I guess there's three, lots of essential fats in that stuff too, right? So you're getting your- well, You get good energy. It's got natural sugars, natural electrolytes. Uh, it's vegan if you're going to do the vegan or vegetarian thing. And man, I use it to make icing if I'm going to do like a sweet, like a cinnamon roll wrap over a fire, or I use it to soak my oats. Like you can get really creative with it. It's a fantastic thing to oh, work that's with. Wow. I've relatively... never even thought of that. I'm going to try that out. Yeah. Oh man. I, I just did it when I was at the, uh, when I did down South on the bicentennial. Yeah. I made icing with it and had cinnamon rolls right on the trail. Like, <laughs> and then, uh, number three, I would say it's got to be the GoPro when it's set up on my with my little flexible tripod in the vlogging case that's yeah just, you got you the gotta, same i think you got the same tripod type thing as me it's with like the the kind of gorilla rubbery legs type thing that just bend around is that yeah that was the one i had and now i run this brand called ulanzi which uses a metal wire versus like sort of the the other one's sort of more like tentacles this has yeah. metal wire and I've found it easier to wrap around the rack or put around the handlebars, depending on which oh, okay. view you want to get. And they don't separate. So this thing's been, yeah, bulletproof for me. Cool. And what's that? Hold on one second. I'm going to open a tab here. Um, what's it called? Ulanzi. U-L-A-N-Z-I. I see it. Okay. Ulanzi. 
Cool. I'm gonna look. Those, I think I'm gonna even, look them up. I think it's even cheaper than the Joby. Honestly, Ulanzi for vlogging cases, incredible. Tripods, incredible. Anything by them. It's just one of these new brands that I'm running big time. I'm not endorsed by them or anything. Okay. Or any, nothing like that. I just love the brand. Cool. Um, and you, what kind of GoPro are you using? Is it like a, one of those Max ones, 3D, whatever, or whatever, 360s? And- no, I think they're cool, and I think it would save me some time to use it, but it's uh, got more of a fisheye to it, so it won't blend as good as my other camera. Uh, okay. So I just run the Hero 8, and the other camera I have, which is the biggest game changer to me for solo adventuring, is the DJI Osmo Pocket. Ah, uh, my buddy's got that, yeah. Yeah, the auto tracking is incredible. So I can have it track me on a bike and I can go and do a turn on a hill or something and it just tracks me and follows me all the way till I'm in and out of frame. It looks fantastic oh, and it's neat. all in 4K. Yeah, and it's super small, super compact and takes no space. No space. Battery lasts forever, shoots good content. And do you use yeah, a drone as well? I've used the drone a little bit, but I don't have one at the moment. I, I want to get good with this stuff first before I get the drone mm-hmm. in. Otherwise, you got too much learning on the camera gear and how to shoot. You get yeah, kind of overwhelmed, enough. you know? Yeah. What have been some of the, since we're talking about camera gear and stuff, what have been some of the biggest challenges with recording yourself or, you know, um, capturing video? Biggest, well, I knew nothing about photography before I got into this, let alone videography. So for me, it was like, what what does FPS mean? How what is 4K? What is 1080p? How do you upload it? Where do you store it? What am I shooting? How do I talk? How do I get the sound right? What do people like? Like, it was it was just all beginner stuff, is what I find. Yeah, the, yeah. the hardest to learn. So what's all the answers? <laughs> yeah, well, you give them to me, and then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How do you store your stuff? Do you just carry remote, uh, like a um, portable hard drive type thing? Yeah, so I, I honestly feel like I've got, like I'm a diesel mechanic, so I'm really not hurting on cash when I am working. So I find, I don't mind buying stuff to try it out. So where I'm at now is I carry two 56 gigabyte uh, SD cards. Okay. I carry four of them, so that's a pile of storage. And then if I need to send it off to get it somewhere uploaded or on to Dropbox, I run a second cell phone that is made with a data plan to just be uploading or I have a portable hard drive that Bluetooths everything, and then I can mail that off while keeping the second storage on the SD cards until it's received to be uploaded. Ah, very cool. Okay, that's neat. Yeah, so it definitely cuts weight, though, just by doing that instead of having, like, four or five hard drives that are slowly filling up and whatnot, right? Yeah, no, I don't do that. Well, I don't I don't run a computer, so everything I do, I have to make sure that I don't need to touch a computer with it. That's why I found... I can't remember the brand now uh, because I've just ordered it in the mail, but this portable hard drive that's Bluetooth and it's, yeah, it's bulletproof and it, it has a little battery pack in it too. So you could charge, you know, your GPS or your phone if you needed to. And that's going to be the solution. And you can drop from iPhone or a Samsung onto it as well, plus your camera gear. So that's going to save huge amounts of storage. Yeah. And um, so you don't carry a computer, but you, you have a team, right? Working to do help you with videos and stuff or producing your videos. Yeah. So when it comes to the producing, I have uh, a couple of friends that work together, a couple, and we've been friends for a while now. So what happens is I shoot all the content. We discuss it. I come up with an episode idea because I'm the one living it. And then I send it to them and get them to do the editing work for me. Cool. You want to do a shout out? Uh, yeah, well, they're, 
they're kind of secretive on their thing right now because they sort of have this strategy, but we can do a big hello to there you Nico go. And, and Ella. Awesome. And uh, all right, so let's talk, uh, let's talk your tour. Um, touring around Australia, you've ridden roughly how many kilometers now? God, man, I, I never know how many kilometers. I've never had an odometer or never kept track, to be honest. <laughs> nice. Okay, so we're yeah. – uh, I mean, what, what parts have you toured of Australia? That's a good call. So, yeah, actually, when it comes to kilometers, when people ask me, I, the, the rough gauge for me is how many tires I go through. But now I'm seeing that these trails, uh, they kill the tires, so it's hard to say kilometers. But I've rode all of Tasmania, so southwest to the end of the north, and then into Melbourne all the way. I'll be in Sydney in a week, so I've, I've done the whole bottom chunk. And then I've done mid Queensland to almost the top of Queensland. So I've done a lot of the whole east side of Australia, including Tasmania. And what have been some of the highlights? Highlights, I always say the Kreb track because crossing the rivers with alligators was one of the most psycho things I've ever done in my life. Oh, I just heard about this today listening to a podcast. Yeah, they were um, – sorry, carry on. Yeah, it's, it's hectic. And, I mean, there's alligators there. And a local came and said – like he came, he showed me the alligator. He's like, that's the one that's going to eat you right there if you go. And I still did it, uh, but it was nuts. And, and where is that? After that, what was that, sorry? Where is the Kreb track? Kreb track is located in Queensland, northern Queensland. Starts okay. at Daintree and ends in Cooktown. Ah. Time for a quick interruption to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventure partners. The Bike Tour Adventures podcast is proud to be partnered with Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat post paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as the main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag-making business for quite some time. Having used a raceback since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Named after the animals that roamed the Tibetan Plateau, Cheru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Manga in 2009. After noticing a lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast website. And how yeah. long is it, roughly? Ooh. How many days? 200 kilometers? <laughs> yeah, 200. It's not that long. Like, if you were on a mountain bike and not bike touring, you could do it in I'd say in a day, day and a half. No, oh, okay. He really went at it, but it's just hardcore. It's in the middle of nowhere. You got no cell signal. It's if there's any kind of rain, it's like impossible to pass. Just hardcore, you know. Oh, sweet. Hardcore short track. And um, any other things that were amazing? I mean, I think all of Australia sounds pretty amazing for bike touring. So, yeah, I think. Uh, well, for me, I, I'm always into the remoteness. So I beat my personal best on how long I went unsupported. So I did eight days bike touring. Uh, without going into a town for supplies. Uh, so I packed enough food for eight days, figured out my water during those eight days, didn't turn my phone on. I thought that was a pretty remarkable highlight for me. And then I would have went longer, but I got reported missing. 
as you probably know now, and then the whole world came looking for me. Yeah, so that was up uh, in PNG, or is that in Australia? No, that that was down in Australia, crossing uh, the most difficult part of the Bicentennial Trail, which is a leg between a town called Marysville to Omeo, 330 kilometers of pure off-grid goodness. Okay. And is this, uh, I saw recently, you had something, yeah, you had to turn around, right? That was that this uh, on this ride, I guess? Well, I had, what happened was I was on my eighth day, like I said, that's where I had set my record. And then my film gear would, needed to be charged. I was shooting a lot of content. I wasn't out of food, wasn't out of water. And so I thought to myself, you know, as long as I go in, charge my gear, and go back to my route, which it was, it would have been 90 kilometers out of my way to do this. Oh, wow. Then yeah. in my mind, I was like, I'm still technically unsupported because I haven't bought food or I haven't whatever. I haven't turned my phone on. So that was my plan was to do that. And when I got to this little mining town that had one pub, that's when the police and everybody came and told me that I was reported missing. So it sort of ended it, it ended how I was planning to do that style of that Damn. bike tour. Anyway. <laughs> that sucks. And so that was it. Then you're like, no, you got to go back and whatever. Uh, so I, I still ended up going back. I spent time, of course, I had to chat with a bunch of police and firefighters. And there was lots of talk on this difficult route I had chosen. And there was lots of media interviews and all kinds of stuff went down. But anyway, I went back, finished it. And then from Omeo, which is still in New South or in Victoria, I made my way into New South Wales and ACT, which for everybody out there, ACT is a state that they made surrounding the capital city, Canberra. So I went in there, biked across it, and now I'm making my way, uh, continuing through New South Wales. Okay, wild. And uh, what is the Kurama National Park? Like, where is Kurama National Park? And um, that looked like a pretty amazing bike, uh, bike excursion. Uh, I'm trying to think of which one that is too now. Which photo? I think it was like you from? had some insane climbing. There was a sign that said like 20 kilometers, it's very steep, no caravans, nothing. And then you said it went on for any long, a lot longer than that anyways. Oh, yes. That was, uh, that was still in Queensland. That was, uh, yeah, that was hectic. It was, it was like 20 kilometers of steep climbs to get to 20 more kilometers of steep climbs is what it felt like <laughs> to me. And pretty rugged and remote as well, right? Rugged and remote, but that one was beautiful because it had waterfalls and it had these little freshwater springs that would be coming out on this sort of narrow gravelly road that I was bike touring. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you had lots of water along the way and you, it was cool because you were up in high altitude. So technically that was pretty sweet bike touring. Okay. In your experiences, are there any parts of Australia for bike touring that you would just skip or avoid or recommend people just not go? Well, I guess it depends what kind of bike tour you are, but I 100% would avoid any main roads or the coastal road that most bike touring people want to do because it's the easiest. Just because Australia to me is more more inland if you want to get a real feel. I mean, if you're a beach person, hit the coastal road, but it's going to be full of traffic and narrower roads, and to me it's just not that comfortable. It would be easier, uh, but if you want to see it, just... Throw a dart at the map and start picking places inland. The Great Divide is incredible. Yeah, I, I think like when you just think of Australia, there's just such a huge country and there's so much in the middle that just gets missed, right? Or not even middle, but everywhere inside from the coast. Oh, everywhere. Like it's, yeah, it's, 
it's a continent and a country like you can get from tropics to snow rain mountains desert you can get it all you know yeah so where are you now i'm now in a town called goldburn which is about 200 kilometers from sydney oh okay cool okay and um yeah anything you'd like to talk about australia that i haven't quite thought of or uh, things you want to share uh i guess the hidden gem of it all for the bike touring people out there we'll keep it quiet between our community yeah is if you guys are looking for a hardcore route that is bikeable with just a slight bit of pushing but remoteless and but still every you know day or two you can get into a pub or get some good food i highly recommend what they call the western explorer in tasmania it's epic the people are amazing the adventure is amazing there's a huge adventure community in Tasmania mm -hmm. and just that route and little side roads if you want to go exploring I, I compared to it was something like the Himalayas just super long sunsets rolling mountains incredible is that the Heems guy Heemskirk road type thing or whatever it's called uh well they call the route the western explorer I'm oh, trying okay. to think of what the other it was already a year ago when I did it but it just always to me it was a highlight in my mind oh, because okay. there's even there's even like ferry crossings to get from town to town. Like oh you're, wow, you're through the bush, man. Yeah, I think it's yeah Western Explorer Highway, but then on the when I look at Google Maps, it actually says Heemskirk Road, but it's probably the highway. Um, long windy thing through uh, near Mount Heemskirk Regional Reserve and whatnot. Heemskirk, and then from there you can go west. So what happens is they'll have these signposts that say like. Warning, do not go unless you have a winch, a four-wheel drive vehicle, a second vehicle, supplies for three days. Like there's these warning signs. Oh, wow. So I picked up maps for those routes along the way and that's the ones I went and did the exploring on. They're just phenomenal. And how much time did you spend in this uh, this part of uh, Taz? Honestly, two weeks would be would be enough to do it properly. Nice. Yeah, I have some good contacts in Tasmania and some other friends that are from there, so... That'd be wild. It could be, man, that could be a big one for you. I think, yeah, I, I did three weeks, but I started down in Hobart and worked my way to the top. But if you had two weeks, plenty to go and rock all that. Yeah. And if you're going to go bikepacking or touring in that area, what kind of a tire, like, would you say you need to have a minimum tire size or something like that? Or is it, you know, what's your, what's your thoughts there? Definitely want a little bit of grip there. Because uh, you're going to be on, there's going to be gravel roads, of course, mm -hmm. and some little bit of trail riding. So something a little knobby. I mean, I run 26s, uh, but I put a, a more of a mountain bike tire on when I do that. Okay. And then make sure you pack your three season gear. So the first night when I camped in Tasmania, even though it was close to summertime still, I woke up to my tent being covered in frost. So you could get below zero temperatures. And if you're going to get rain and it's only a few degrees, you're going to obviously be cold. So Rain pants is going to be a big one and probably a set of thermals, three season tent and make sure you bring your good sleeping bag and you'll be more than comfortable with that to, you know, enjoy it properly. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget that Tasmania is on, uh, it's almost the same um, as far south as the south of New Zealand. Like it's kind of running right through the middle of South Island, you know, so it's uh, pretty south. Yeah, it's far south. People, people don't... Uh, most people don't know that, and I wouldn't have thought they would have had the temperatures there that it did. But, yeah, when I woke up to frost on my tent, like, I knew I was in for some pretty cool bike touring. But your days are still beautiful. There were still days where I could take my shirt off and ride. And you, and have, family, sun. you have family in Hobart or somewhere in Tasmania, right? 
Yeah, that's right. So I have a, a cousin from Saskatchewan that uh, got married to uh, a girl from Australia and they live down in Hobart. Nice. That's wild. All right. So um, I think one thing that's really interesting to talk about because not too many people have done this is cycling in Papua New Guinea. Oh, yeah. I mean, shit. What happened? How did you end up in Papua? Uh, so my work requires uh, me to go to Papua New Guinea. So as a diesel mechanic now, I'm sort of transitioning into instructing other diesel mechanics. Okay. So I I work side by side with uh, Papua New Guineans as a diesel mechanic in a gold mine there. So on my time off, there's mandatory time off because you can't work every single day straight. Mm-hmm. I, I picked up a bicycle, a tent. I took pigeon lessons, which is the language they speak. And I got a spare tire and a bike pump for under $150. And nice. on my time off, I've been just bike touring all over. And seriously, it's I it's not even relatable to anywhere else in the world. Like your dirt floor, cooking over a fire. Uh, you're going to the bathroom either in the forest or like most of the people there that live on the coast, they go in the ocean. Like it was crazy, crazy old school hardcore. And uh, where were you based? Like what part of uh, Papua New Guinea? Uh, on New Ireland province on the east side. Down in the east, yeah? Yeah. And is that one of the islands or that's – oh, yeah, it's an island, right? Yeah, it's all islands when you get out east. So really there's only mainland uh, Papua New Guinea, which has – I can't remember how many states or provinces, but quite a few. There's 22 or something in total. And then the second furthest east one is the where I would have been. Okay. Yeah, I know somebody who cycled like the mainland of Papua and they kind of started somewhere like Karima or something. And then they kind of went down and around the point and back up and they had some crazy freaking adventures. But um, what were, were, were there any things you had to really be aware of and dangerous in New Ireland? Or? Uh, just like anywhere else, do your cultural checks. You got to realize that they have a completely different mentality than a Western mindset. So you... <clears throat> You need to familiarize yourself with the customs they have. Definitely when it comes to, they believe in spirits, magic, sort of voodoo. So you don't want to do anything to disrespect that way. They Mm -hmm. have a huge amount of respect for pigs there and everybody has their own pig. And it's a sort of a sign of how, how big and strong you are and how financially well you could support your partner by how well you take care of your pigs. And do they eat the pigs or is it just like cows in India? They well, they definitely eat the pigs, but they would sell the pig or butcher it like for a wedding or something. Okay. Or you would you would trade a pig. Quite literally, when you get married there, there's going to be um, a bride price, is what they call it. Yeah. So bride price, depending on the woman. If I mean, and I'm not being discriminatory here or close-minded or racist or anything. This is this is how they say it. Like if she has been educated or went to school then she has a higher bride price. So she's going to be worth maybe 10,000 Kina, which is roughly 5,000 Canadian dollars and five pigs that you owe to her father for receiving his daughter as a bride. Yeah. I mean, it's more common than you think throughout the world. I have a really good buddy from Somalia and he's like, this is what we do. You know, like if I were to get married in Somalia, I'd be, I'd be buying my wife with animals and cows and whatever, you know, it's just, yeah. Culture. I mean, that's part of Culture, that, part man. of the reason why we travel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you go to learn it and understand it, so it's a beautiful thing. But yeah, you just want to familiarize yourself with that. And uh, I never talk to women there because, I mean, 
the value of a human life there is completely different. Just like if you and I are hanging out and I spend, you know, I have a long conversation with your girlfriend and maybe we don't know each other and that could be considered strange. Well, there that would be enough to take your head off and bury your body or throw it in a river. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I, I find myself, I never speak to women there. I only speak to men okay. and to the authority, to the authoritative man. So you're going to have villages where there's clearly men that sort of lead it and people like they'll live in a better house or have more respect. And I find myself associating myself with that person to get comfortable with everybody else in the area. Kind of like the village chief type thing. Something exactly like that. And it could be of a family, not necessarily the whole village, Mm -hmm. or it could be of the village too. Like you find these well-respected figures and you associate with them and, and they'll tell you what you can and can't do kind of thing, or they'll guide you because they understand also that you don't know. They, they do understand that. And did, um, did people in Papua think you were nuts to, to cycle around, like to, to leave your work camp and go explore? Were they like, this guy's going to get himself killed? I don't think they thought I was nuts. I would say they were overjoyed with happiness. Like they were, they couldn't believe that this white person, in their words, was able to come and spend time with them, see how they live and eat their food and sleep the way they sleep. And uh, they were ecstatic, to be honest. They were so warm and welcoming. I had no threatening times. Nothing negative happened whatsoever. I have only good stories from Papua New Guinea. And would you say that, um, like, at the start start of your your exploring out into the community and stuff, was that with people you were working with? So you get to know their families and stuff and then kind of went from there? Yeah, so for me, the important thing anytime you get into a country like Papua New Guinea uh, or something that's very underdeveloped is learning the language as best as you can. So I did my best to take lessons, uh, even if it was after work, speak with the locals that I worked with. And then I just went out and explored. It was that simple. And if I didn't feel comfortable, I mean, my first day out, I remember just thinking like, wow, I feel really comfortable. They're open and receiving. Like, this is it. I can camp here. I can I can hang out with these people. I can sleep with them. It's not a, it wasn't a big deal, you know? I didn't feel threatened. That's amazing. I wonder if that would have been the same had you been on the mainland or something where, you know, maybe they see more foreigners with money and stuff. And I mean, I guess it's just it's case by case, right? Case by case. I would say the further you are away from a touristy area, the safer you are. I'd agree with that. Even you, you could be in the most dangerous part of Papua New Guinea, which is the highlands where they are the most muscular and strongest human beings you've ever met in your life. And they have zero value for a human life. Okay. And I think as long as you're coming in there respectful, open-minded, and you're not near a tourist area, I would say you'll be treated quite literally like royalty. Okay. And the Highlands is kind of like up in the middle of the island, right? Like where the border is, that area? Sorry, the uh, I didn't get the sound there. Sorry, I said, is the Highlands that up in the uh, middle of the island, up towards where the, the split is with Indonesian Papua, West Papua? Just a little bit east of there. So if you think of... Uh, the mainland area where the Papua New Guinea, the main island is, it's sort of in the center there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of where the roads end. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. How much time did you spend in Papua New Guinea? Seven months. Seven months. And do you have, uh, do you go back at all anymore or is that kind of on hold? Yeah. So I'm going to go back actually mid-March. That's why I'm biking to Sydney because I'll go back to Papua New Guinea to go work again. Okay. And uh, what are, like one of the any stories you want to share about traveling in Papua? I think you came across some pretty cool experiences and uh, things that might, um, yeah, just might be nice to worth sharing. 
Uh, well, the I would say the most interesting thing that happened to me because I had spent so much time. I had slept in a few different villages, but there was one particular village where I met Polyus, who was right. uh, about our age, <coughs> and <clears throat> him and I became really close friends. So his village wanted to sort of welcome me. And they invited me to do a traditional dance with them. So they put me in traditional Papua New Guinea outfit and makeup. And uh, and we practiced how to dance and sing. And then I oh, went so and did cool. a dance for them in front of, like, literally hundreds, if not thousands of people. Nice. How was that? One of the most hardcore slash stressful things. Because you got to imagine the insecurities you have. Uh, being from a Western society, being the only Westerner there, wondering, are they going to accept me or not accept me? How do I look? What if somebody else sees this? Like there was so much going through my head. It was just trying to be present in the moment that you're in Papua New Guinea and a tribe has welcomed you and invited you to do something that is considered like you, you grow up wanting to do these dances in their, in their country and in their culture. And they invited me to do that. So it was one of the most special circumstances. I can imagine that you'd be thinking like, I don't want to screw this up. What if I insult them or whatever? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Am I going to make my village that I spend so much time in, am I going to make them look bad because of this also going through my mind? And was this, uh, was this the same time as that big, uh, I, I think I saw on your Instagram as well was the, um, like the drumming and it was like a back and forth drumming circle type thing. So that was a, that was a different event. Uh, the one I went to would have been about 10 times bigger than that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that looks really epic. It was like pretty neat. Yeah, I haven't even posted about any of this yet. Like it was once I got back from Papua New Guinea, I had all these crazy submersions and photos and videos. I still have like a terabyte of material to go through before I post uh, because I wanted to get on this bike tour that I'm currently doing. But yeah, there's heaps of cool content that's going to come up from my oh, time. Cool. There. Looking forward to that. Um, any advice you'd give to somebody if they're going to go to, or uh, did we talk about that? I don't remember if I brought it up because it was out of order, but maybe advice for cycling in Papua New Guinea. Yeah, I think, uh, well, we sort of touched on that. It was yeah. just un- familiarize yourself with cultures and, t- and traditions of the area and try and learn some pidgin. So, because if they see you attempting, they're going to receive you far more openly and you don't have to feel threatened either like if you feel threatened and you put your guard up then they're going to sense that so you have to learn to be comfortable i would say don't go there if it's your first developing country i would maybe work your way up to that one yeah uh, but if you're a, if you're a pretty familiar traveler and you've got some some life skills and you can handle the developed countries definitely go there but just familiarize yourself big time before you go out into the rural farming areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of countries, I mean, just people like to see that you're trying at their language, even if you, you really suck at it and make really dumb mistakes. It's just a, a good feeling to see you say, thank you, hi, how are you? Those even basics. Huge. Like it goes, yeah, it goes above and beyond. It doesn't matter. You think you look stupid, but to them and in, in their eyes, they just see that you want to be like them and they're they're they just want to be accepted right so they that's how they feel when you do that yeah 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 and i always find it funny like you know in canada and i'm gonna bring this up i'm a teacher right so i find it really weird that in canada everything is like always like people are worrying about cultural appropriation cultural appropriation um where it would be bad in canada if at chinese new year i were to wear a chinese shirt and uh celebrate you know 
Chinese New Year. Where when I lived in Malaysia, you know, as soon as I put a Chinese shirt on for New Year celebrations, everybody's so happy. Uh, for the Indian celebrations, I'd wear like I had a um, a Northern India outfit, Punjabi style. So happy, you know. Uh, and then here in Canada, we're so worried about this thing. And I'm like, well, if I'm not wearing it for Halloween, but I'm wearing it to celebrate a culture, you should be quite happy, you know? Yeah, you're right. I, I don't know why we have that cultural appropriation in Canada. I guess we're scared of offending somebody or... But realistically, other cultures want you to to know about theirs at least. And if you want to be like them, I think it's a bonus. Yeah, I remember in 2014-15 when I was in teacher's college, the university actually canceled i don't know how long it lasted maybe people got up and i just kind of ignored it but they canceled the free yoga in the student commons because somebody complained that doing yoga as white europeans or whatever we are is cultural appropriation because we're not really making amends for all the bad things the british did in india and i was like that's just insane (laughs) Yeah, to me, when that kind of stuff happens, you're just digging up bones and creating problems where it's like we need to progressively move forward as a group and realize that every human society in past history has done inhumane things. But moving forward, we can't delve into the past. We need to move forward. And, yeah, I mean, because then I think you're, you're, you're making negativity uh, become more aware when you do things like that. Like we don't need to make present people angry for past faults, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, having gone to India to do your yoga certification and stuff, does this tie in with your cycling? How does it, how do you, how do you bring this into your, your routines of cycling and mindset and stuff? Oh God, I wish I could say, yeah, I do a half hour yoga every morning and I do a sunset in the evening. Like, but I totally don't, right? Like I haven't done yoga in forever. Okay. Um, when I say forever, I mean like a month and a half. Mm-hmm. But it's the mindset of yoga and what it teaches you about breathing and becoming aware and being mm-hmm. calm. There's no way I would have been able to do eight days by myself in the middle of nowhere in Australia without having done the yoga. Otherwise, you you get you'd panic instantly. And, and yoga just teaches you to be aware, be calm. You make way better decisions when you're calm. Yeah. So I, I feel like I take that with me outside of the physical routine of it. Awesome. What plans do you have next with regards to, to bike touring? I guess you're heading back, you said, in the next little while to uh, to Papua New Guinea. You're doing some current tours now in Australia. What, what else is up? So I'll do – I'll end up doing the whole from the bottom tip of Tasmania to the top of Australia and Cape York. I'll do that – as in between working in Papua New Guinea. When I go to Papua New Guinea, I'll continue to bike tour around there. And once Australia is done for me, I can always go back to work in Papua New Guinea. And on my time off there, I can just stay in the country, bike tour. Hopefully the borders open up and then I'll make my way into Indonesia and bike around the whole planet. Nice. And um, for Tasmania to Cape York, are you are you kind of staying inland? Are you going to be cutting through... Like I have some pretty remote areas or what's the, what's the route? The route is uh, more or less following the inside, so inland part of the Great Divide. So I would say more or less the most difficult way you could possibly do it, but gives you those mountains, those beautiful sunrises, sunsets, the viewpoints. Kind of the stuff I'm looking for is always the remote and seclusion, the challenge, the difficult. It's yeah. about 50 times slower 
because you're only getting 30, 40 kilometers some days mm-hmm. uh, compared to regular bike touring, 80 to 120 on average, I would say, for people. Yeah. Uh, so it's slower, but I find, yeah, I don't know. I, to me, the reward is far greater. And how much stuff will you have to carry for that? Are you going to have a trailer and whatnot, or are you just going to, I don't know? I'm down now, so I just went and bought – uh, a new tent. So for the other bike tours out there, there's a brand in Australia called Mont. Of course, I'm not endorsed by them. Mont, M-O-N-T. And they build tents for Australia, which is hardcore, rugged, and waterproof with no fancy bells or whistles to keep the weight down, mm-hmm. but with way stronger poles than what you'd get from like an MSR or another brand. So I switched to them. I saved, God, from my Hilberg tent, which was, you know, over $1,000. I saved like two, three kilos, and then I got a sleeping pad. So with all this weight reduction that I have and learning how to pack food better and the necessity camera gear, I'm going to be down to four panniers and a handlebar bag, Okay. and I'll be good to go through anything in Australia like that. Nice. Yeah, because I know it gets pretty remote, and um, I I know of a guy that cycled furthest east to furthest west or vice versa. I think furthest west to east and Mm -hmm. uh, right through the middle of the country. And seems insane and slightly awesome. <laughs> yeah. When you get inland here, I think you're mostly looking for uh, – that would be a more mental challenge. Physically, it's possible besides the whole finding water thing. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they're doing three, four, five hundred 500-kilometer stretches when there's guaranteed no supplies. Unless you're doing it on a trail trail. If you're on a road, I mean, if you had a necessity like your emergency, you could pull a vehicle over. But – it's not like you're getting one every five minutes. Like you might only get a handful a day. So it's pretty darn remote even on a main road if you're inland in Australia. People don't understand how crazy it is. It, it's not like traveling, you know, northern Manitoba. I mean, it would be like going through the northern Yukon had it be as warm as the desert, you know? Right. Yeah, I think I've, I've even heard of people like the road that goes from like Adelaide and then up to Alice Springs and stuff to Darwin, like. That's an insane ride, and that's like a main road in the country. Yeah, it's a fairly main road, but it's – yeah, there's a stretch in there. Any Near Alice Springs, which I've worked in Alice Springs and uh, Mount Isa, man, it is red as far as the eye can see. And there was days where we were getting 44, 45 degrees. Like it's almost uncomprehendable unless you live in Australia how hot and dry it is. Like – if I was going to do it, my plan is to do it, I, I call it on night shift. I would find places or shelters to sleep in the day if possible, and I would bike it at night because I think you could cover way more ground, and I think you'd go through less food and water. Okay, interesting. Good to know. All right. Yeah. So that's your next plans. Is there anything else I missed that you want to talk about? Uh, I guess I don't know if there's anything else I want to cover. I'm just, I think it's good that we're all reaching out, and thank you for bringing me on so we can have this community. It's good to start reaching out. I'm starting to put videos out now. If anybody's interested in watching them, it's under my name, Leighton Ketty. Yeah, exactly. Tell us about your stuff, what you're doing. Yeah, so uh, what happened when this corona came, I got locked more or less uh, into work, and I started writing a book, which I called The Travel Forever Machine, which is how to build a bike touring bike that will travel any country, anywhere, any circumstances, which is essentially what Kajiheta is. And then that name stuck with me. So that's when I started calling my page and my travels. It's the My Travel Forever machine. So essentially what I'd like to do for other people who are on this wavelength of the hardcore challenging and looking for personal growth, what I'm trying to do is build a mind, body, and bike to travel forever. And 
I'm just open to receiving information from anybody else out there on, you know, how the videos look or if they have tips or tricks or advice on routes. Because the more we share with each other, the better everybody's adventures are, you know? Totally agree. Do you see yourself sticking with your, what's it, Kajahera or something for the next while? Or do you see yourself changing to a different kind of bike that allows you to get more out there? Yeah, I already, like, in my mind, I've already got the other bicycle built, but I, I'm honestly, like, when I say I am married to Kajahera, like, I am married to Kajahera. Like, she's about 15 meters from me right now, and I feel like I miss her. She misses me. Like, I am so attached to that bicycle <laughs> that I owe it to her to travel around the planet, and then I'll, like, maybe I'll put her in the, the museum in my little tiny hometown or something, and then I'll build the next crazy one that would be far more bikepacking style. And um, when you're in Papua New Guinea, do you get, like, a withdrawal from her? Big time. I feel sick with Okaji Head. I seriously worry all the time. <laughs> yeah, so a crazy story about tires for me. I get into Omeo, which is essentially the last leg of this hardcore trek I wanted to do between Marysville and Omeo. There's police there waiting for me. I had got pulled over again. Everybody knows who I am and wants my photo. Anyway, so I was just trying to duck away because I really don't like that much attention. Uh, but I found this cool bike shop where the owner was from Belgium, uh, and he raced, and I said, hey, I just want to make sure, because you know so much about bike touring and uh, racing, can you just watch me ride and tell me what you think of my body position? And he was like, yeah, of course, man. So we're having a coffee, and then I go for a yeah. ride on my bicycle, and he's like, something is looking weird on your rear tire. So anyway, he goes to hit the quick release, and it was like unlocked, and the rear wheel popped out, and he's like, well, I can't believe you didn't die. Like, and I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm like, wow, do I feel like such a rookie that that would happen? But probably just coming in from the crazy mountains, it would have yeah. somehow wiggled loose or stretched the axle. I don't even know. Anyway, so we take the tire off and look. And I had somebody told me about these specialized tires with this armadillo casing, supposed to be super hardcore. So I thought I'd run them. Here, the rubber peeled off of the bead and it looked like the tire was fine and there was still tread but all the rubber was loose and oh. my belting was coming apart and literally that tire was like one second away from exploding on a hub that was ready to fall off the bike. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's yeah. insane. You should reach out to Sashlice and be like, yo, guys, your tires are shit. <laughs> tires are so shit. Yeah. Man, speaking of tires, does anybody else out there find it difficult to find a good tire? I think, uh, well, I mean, I use like, I used Continental GP 5000s this last year, but those are slick. Um, so I was doing mostly paved road. Uh, they were mm -hmm. great. I think WTB makes some pretty sweet, like gravel-esque gravel type tires. Um, I never thought of WTB tires, but WTB, in my opinion, is the best bang for buck value brand going. So I'm going to check that out. Yeah. And it's interesting that you said Continental because I ran Continental Race Sports when I was bike touring through Central America, and I never had a single puncture, and I wore that tire out bald. Yeah, I was riding my front one all the way up to Whitehorse, and it was getting like, uh, sorry, my, my back tire was because of the weight and stuff, and hitting gravel roads once in a while was getting like the, you know, you, you get to see through it. You see the, the cloth underneath? Yeah. And then yeah, the I replaced it, replaced it in uh, Whitehorse, yeah. Um, Vittoria, I know as well, they're starting to produce mountain bike tires and whatnot, and they have a pretty good gravel range as well. And they, they never used to produce anything but road tires. So possibly there. Possibly there. Yeah. Notice how we're not talking about Schwalbe's. I have one. 
<laughs> but do you like them? I, I ran them once and they failed on me miserably, got warranty, failed again. And I was like, I don't even care about the warranty. I'm just not going to run these again. Yeah, I used a mar- I, I bought a marathon in, um, in Whitehorse because well, I had very little selection. So I bought a marathon in one store and a WTB foldable one at the other store. And I thought, okay, well, I put on the marathon because it's got a wire be- a bead. And then I taped the WTB to my bo- the bike of my bo- uh, the body of my bike. And in case my GP5000 on the front would need replacing, but I made it all the way home with, without changing it. So, um, Oh, that's good. It's good, so but it like, good it's okay, you. but it's pretty heavy tire. You know, they're not light. Um, and that's kind of one thing I like when I'm on a bike is a light-ish tire. Yeah, to, yeah, get the rolling resistance down. I remember this from snowmobile racing back in the day. We used to say that anything rotating, so rotating mass is 10 times heavier than weight you put on it. So... We used to cut the tips of our paddles off of our track on our snowmobile. No kidding. So for listeners, a snowmobile is a motorcycle for snow. We would cut the tips off, and you'd have this little bit of rubber, but that was 10 times the weight saving. So I'm even going to get into it on my next episode where I'm probably going to get those race sports. I'm going to cut some of the side lugs off. I'm going to see how it rolls and how it wears with cutting lugs off my tire. That would be interesting. I, I, I mean, I always knew that it was slower to – to have heavier tires because it's centrifugal force. You get a lot of like the weight is throwing off you, right? Um, throwing off. It's not really throwing off though. It's like adding on. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Same. Yeah, that's a good point. Never thought of it that way. Interesting. Yeah, it would be cool to find out because I mean, if you look at bike touring tires, we spend most of our time going straight. We're not taking turns really fast unless you're like a hardcore bike packer. So to me, the side lugs, I'm going to get rid of half of them on the inner and the outer. I saw something. You met a guy who had bike toured for like 30 years or something, and he was friends with the the German guy there. What's his name? Um, Heinstuck. Heinstuck. The, the god of bike touring. Tell us about that. So Tillman Waldhaler, uh, from Italy originally, lives in Cannes now, bikes all over the world, currently trending in the bike touring world because he's got a story that just got published. Anyway, author, great guy, super easy to chat with. What's his name? And yeah, he's Tillman. Okay. Waldhaler. Waldhaler sounds very German, but he's Italian. Okay. And he, yeah, he's been all over the world. And he was, yeah, him and I haven't biked to her together. We just had a coffee, but well, I went over gear and some routes and really good guy. And he's spent quite a bit of time with Heinstuck and he's been in, he's been in Germany in Heinstuck's apartment that he currently resides in. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. The one guy I met, the longest cyclist I've ever met here, I think he'd been at it for like 22 or 24 years, something like that. What was his name? Um, Charlie. I don't remember his last name. Um, he actually stayed in my house in Cambodia uh, with through warm showers. And, How cool uh, is that? Yeah, stayed for about, I don't know. Well, he left his bike, I think, in my house for a couple days. Well, um, no, sorry, he didn't. Stayed at our house while he was getting a visa process. And then he went for a little bike tour and came back when it was ready and just left some of his stuff at our place. And uh, yeah, really, that? really, really cool dude. But, you know, some of these guys who've been touring forever they're like i don't really want to be on podcasts because i don't really want to like i like to keep my stories for more intimate settings and with people that i just want to share that one story with you know yeah so, and you're right they're interesting when, remember i talked about when i did central america how i had never slept in a tent and i didn't have a mattress or anything yeah the inspiration that got me through that who i never talked about was this german named thomas Maxner, who you'd practically cannot find if you google him but he's sponsored by schwalbe and he gets sponsored to ride anyway when i was with him we bike toured for seven or eight days together 
his odometer on that bicycle rolled over 430,000 kilometers while I was with him. Isn't that insane? Insane. And the, he was the one that taught me, he's like, why are you setting up a tent anyway? He's like, you don't even need it. He's like, you just sleep beside the bike. He's like, it ain't going to rain. And I remember thinking like, yeah, why, why am I worried about a tent? Like, I'll just, that's, that's what just gave me the motivation to go through Central America with no tent. I'll just sleep beside the bike. Like, he does it. Why can't I do it? Like, he showed me that. And he's like, if you need a place to sleep, talk to the bomberos, talk to the firefighters, talk to the priests at the church, talk to the police. And yeah, like, it was crazy how many doors he opened up in that short period of time for me. Yeah, just through simple conversation, right? simple conversation and yeah he just he rode like hell i don't know like he has the heaviest bike in the world he has this custom made one from germany and i remember riding with him my knees literally started to swell up and they were like gonna explode i remember having to we were like in belize or somewhere and i had to go and get painkillers over the counter whatever you pay two bucks for some weird color pill yeah and then anyway it took the swelling down in my knees and i could ride with him but yeah i just pushed like a demon oh that's amazing yeah yeah, I think I was, was going to say about sleeping outside. I think the only downside is like imagine Canada in June and the black flies and mosquitoes. And it definitely wants something for those nights. Yeah, it doesn't work everywhere. And it, it all Not depends sure. on wind and where you're going to sleep and all that. Like the amount of times I've slept without my tent in Canada, I, I don't even have one that comes to mind. I mean, you'd at least set up your tent, maybe not, not necessarily the fly because you got to get away from those black flies and then you can just look through the mesh and still see the moon and stars. You oh, know? That's a good point. Good point. Yeah. Maybe it gives me inspiration. My next tent, I'll buy one that has the uh, removable fly. So I just have the mesh. Yeah. I think when it comes to tents for bike touring, I, I, uh, normally I'd run a hardcore Hilberg like peg down, but now for bike touring, I run a freestanding because lots of times people say like, come sleep in my porch or yeah. set it up in the barn or whatever. And you're like, Oh no, I can't because I can't put my pegs in. And it was just, uh, I'd realized really quickly that if you're going to do it, you need a freestanding. So something super quick and simple and freestanding, I think is better for bike touring. Yeah. When I was cycling last year, North from Vancouver to Whitehorse, um, I stopped at a friend of a friend's place and the, you know, because of COVID, they just had a baby and they're like, we're more than glad to have you got, you stay here, but you, you got to stay out of the house. And they had an outhouse outside as well. Um, they fed me and stuff, which was great. And they had a tree house. And he's like, why don't you put your tent up there? I said, well, I need pegs. He's like, here's a drill gun. Here's a drill and screws. Why don't you just put some screws into the base of the tree house? Hook your things on. It's like, perfect. How crazy. Because mine's not freestanding. And I'm like, I need a freestanding tent. Yeah, you need the freestanding tent. But it's cool that you got to learn how to drill and do all that too. Like you kind of become a carpenter. You become a bike mechanic. You become a little bit of everything. When you do the bike touring, eh? well, similar to you, I built a house. So I, when I was uh, 29, I moved back home to Canada. Uh, well, back here again, um, and helped my dad build a house. So I spent about a year with him. Nice. So yeah, yeah, and then all those skills you learn there, measuring, maintenance, transferable, just taking care of tools. It all transferable. So people can find you by searching "My Travel Forever Machine." My Travel Forever Machine or my name, Leighton Ketty. It's under both. So simple there. And as far as filming goes, because everybody, especially the bikepacking and bike touring community, we're all sort of looking to make videos and figure out a way to make money off media so we can do this forever. Uh, so everybody's knowing currently right now I make nothing off of any of my posts. And I've got sponsorship actually, but I've never pursued it. Like I've had companies approach me like Lululemon 
has mm-hmm. told me like we will sponsor you but I to me I like to self-fund it because then I don't feel obligated to do anything I feel like it's more for me so I'm just gonna run this solo and self-fund it uh, and so everybody knows out there that's filming uh, the first few videos that I did were literally done on a cell phone and a microphone and then I got into a GoPro and a better cell phone and now I'm running camera gear which I don't have any of those videos up yet but if you want to look, like know that I started literally from the bottom and didn't know what FPS meant, uh, now I work my way up to this where I'm making video blogs and have introductions. And so if that's what you want to do and pursue, it's 100% possible. Awesome. And there is a, uh, I'm not sure where he lives in Australia, but there's a Canadian dude there who uh, has a um, bikepacking bag building company. I forget the name of it. If I find the, if I figure it out, I'll uh, send you a link to Maybe reach Not out. Not Arkell, is it? No, no, Arkell's out of Canada. That's for sure out of Montreal area. Um, yeah. No, this is a smaller business, and I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but I heard it recently, so it'll it'll come up. Yeah, God, it rings a bell. Some other guy the other day tried to. Uh, he seen my my paneers, and he was a businessman and a bike tour, and he's like, "Let's get these things going. Let's rock and roll. Let's sell these." And I was like, "Man, if you want to, I'll tell you everything I did to do it, which I've already just told our audience. The company is called Beehive, okay, uh, out of Queensland, and it's like I have no, I don't know. I just, I'd rather just pull on my wrenches, make my money that way, and then bike around, you know? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I just there's came, opportunities out there. I just came across it. It's called Terra Rosa Gear. And um, the guy makes bike packing and ultralight gear, and he is out of can't tell you for sure. Um, I'm gonna search it really quickly here. I'm gonna say Melbourne. I'm gonna guess, but we'll see. Melbourne. <laughs> Boom. You got it. Yeah, they got a good outdoor community. Yeah, so he's uh, he's down there, but uh, it's a Canadian dude. I think he's out of either Alberta or BC. Can't remember the top of my head, but uh, yeah, I heard him on a podcast. So name's Evan Howard. Evan Howard, cool guy. Yeah. yeah. Some guys rock it. It's cool that they make uh, other stuff like that available for the hardcore bike tours versus <clears throat> the overpriced crap that really doesn't last. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and I think it's also awesome just to see that there's Canadians out there around the world making it happen and, you know, um, settling in places and making career- lives for themselves and producing awesome stuff because, you know, we're, we're kind of a – we're a country of people who are pretty – no, we're not a lot, as loud as the Americans, so people kind of just pass us over. Yeah, it's true. We're like, well, I guess we're humble. Let's let's say we're humble anyway. A lot of my humble listeners are American. I'm not saying Americans are bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Americans are our neighbors, but Australians are like our, our cousins too, so it makes sense that uh, the Canadians branch out to these places to take what... I think Canadians have a ruggedness to them because they live in worse climates than say Australians and Americans do uh, not, not in every aspect, but we have that ruggedness where we believe really hardcore in a durability. And what well, this guy, Evan Howard would have seen that the lightweight scene in Australia is all the rage right now. So he would have said, okay, well, how do we find the durability in the lightweight? Uh, and that's probably quite what he came up with and probably sells a really good product. Yeah. We got, we got tough lives up here in the North. You know, I spent Sunday yesterday snow raking the snow off my roof just cause you know, you don't want, to risk your roof collapsing, but there had yeah. to be like a meter of snow up there. I'm like, holy shit. How many Americans and Australians out there can relate to having to shovel <laughs> snow off their roof so it doesn't collapse? <laughs> right. And this is summer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is summertime. Yeah. The polar bears were coming in. So I did. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Any other crazy stories? Crazy stories? I don't know. I think maybe it's time to go make some more crazy stories, you know? All right, man. Well, it's been grand. Uh, really appreciate finally getting down and uh, having a chance to record with you and uh, really wishing you awesomeness and uh, keep in touch and looking forward to more of your videos. Awesome, Chris. Thank you, my brother. What a pleasure to do the interview. Thank you, man. Pleasure having you on. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. Before we end this podcast, I'd like to tell you about some of Bike Tour Adventures' other amazing partners. I'm very proud to be supported by Brockton Cyclery, a Toronto-based bike shop dedicated to bike touring and bikepacking. Carrying many of the top bike touring and bikepacking brands, I can honestly say that they have helped me to build the most durable and fast bikepacking bike possible. We're also supported by Race Day Fuel. Their mission is to ensure that you consume the very best and appropriate food and beverage for the task at hand. Working with top brands such as Scratch, Noon, and Untapped, they have all your nutrition needs taken care of. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures website. There you have it. That is the end of episode 48 of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Almost at that 50 mark. That's pretty cool. Um, just want to thank Leighton again for, for taking the time and uh, hope everybody's understanding that we can't always have quality studio podcast interviews. Um, Leighton was on the side of the road and it's quite all right. I did the best I could editing it um, and hopefully it comes out all right. Next episode of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast is going to be a touring talk episode. So Carl Presso, uh, who was just on episode 47, is going to be co-hosting that talk with me. And we're going to be talking about bike maintenance and spare parts, tools, that sort of thing. So I think it's a really cool episode that will help out a lot of people when you're on the road, at least give you some insight into what you should bring with you. Last thing before I check out is just to remind you that if you are in a position to help with the podcast, it is really appreciated. For a dollar, three dollars, five dollars a month, whatever you want, you can be a patron of the podcast and I will keep on producing content. If you can't afford it, no worries. I get it. Uh, I've been in that position, especially when bike touring. So uh, if you could just go on to Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you app, uh, app you use and just give me a five-star rating, that would be sweet. So thanks, guys, and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on pedaling.